Let us pray. God Almighty, we give you thanks this day. Thanks for your word for us. And thanks for the gift that you give us of being able to worship you, to bring our praises, to shout our hosannas. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts bring you glory now. Amen. Two years ago, during Lent, a small group of us were reading a book called The Last Week. The Last Week is an interesting book that looks at the final days of Jesus' life, Holy Week, from a historical lens and the ways the, gospel, uh, the Gospels describe the events. The authors of the book, John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, use historical context to help people understand a little bit better who Jesus was and what he was doing. One part of the book has stayed with me ever since our first discussions of it. As their book follows Jesus through Holy Week, it starts, of course, on Palm Sunday. The opening of the book describes two processions, not just the one that we're used to hearing about on Palm Sunday. We're familiar with the story, of course, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And we're familiar with the palms being waved, although you may have noticed that in this morning's gospel lesson from Mark's gospel, there are some leafy branches, but no palms mentioned. But we're familiar with this procession of Jesus into Jerusalem. Maybe you're even familiar, and you likely are familiar, with the fact that a few days later, this same Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced, and killed. But in this moment, Jesus is being surrounded by crowds, crowds of peasants, people from the community who joined an assembly, throwing down their coats, a costly sacrifice, and walking with Jesus. I mentioned two processions, though. The other procession was very different. This was an imperial procession. Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of several regions, was also entering Jerusalem. He was riding on regal horses with chariots and military soldiers. Pilate was arriving in Jerusalem because it was just before Passover, a significant Jewish festival, and Pilate's arrival was to be expected. It was normal for the representative of the Roman government to be present in case there was any political trouble. Pilate and these other soldiers arrive in order to subdue any potential uprisings. This was particularly true at Passover, because Passover celebrates the Jewish liberation from an earlier occupying empire. The Roman fear at the time was that during this celebration of Passover, the Jewish people could rise up against the Roman occupation. They feared revolution, and their displays of military strength were used to make it clear that uprising would be met with force. It's very easy for me to imagine this mighty military procession with soldiers and on horses and on foot, covered in armor, carrying weapons, wearing their helmets, carrying symbols of power. There would be lots of shining metal and gold. Imagine the sounds of thousands of soldiers marching with their leather armor, the thundering sounds of the horses, and the steady banging of the drums. The dust must have created an immense cloud around them. It would be impossible to miss this imposing force coming into Jerusalem. Place yourself in the feet of those people watching silently as this force came through town. 
I think I probably would have been among that crowd rushing to see. I, I love a good spectacle. But I would also be afraid, recognizing the threat. But I also wonder whether you might be bitter or angry at the occupation, angry at this show of force coming from a foreign government when you were waiting to celebrate your holiest of festivals. While you'd been expecting and knowing of the occupation, I wonder if you'd also be longing for an alternative. And so, across town, on the other side of a valley from Jerusalem, coming down from the Mount of Olives, there's this other procession. Borgen Crossen call it a counter-procession, a procession Jesus intentionally designed to contrast with Pilate's imperial march. When we put ourselves again into the shoes of those who were standing nearby, they were presented with a clear choice of these two contrasting processions. It helps to better understand why people might have been excited about this counter procession, right? They were longing for something else, something different. At the time, though, they also had to have had some expectations of who Jesus was and why he was there and why they were lining the road. What were those expectations? Expectations significant enough that they took off their clothes possibly their most substantial and necessary things that they owned, and they laid them down in the road. They had to have had great expectations of this man, expectations perhaps that he would rescue them. But expectations they had formed for themselves and based even on what was going on around town, across town where Pontius Pilate was. And as much as this alternative to Caesar, the appeal of a counter-demonstration, had to bring in many of the people, caught up in the energy of the moment that looked like a thumb in the nose of the occupiers, it was very appealing, as much as that alternative would rally most people, I wonder if in those coming days those expectations were ever met. When, when we think of the, the military might that Pilate brought to Jerusalem, the vision of this cavalry of soldiers and chariots and horses, it all makes sense. It, it fits our vision of a royal procession, a strong royal procession. But when we think of a donkey, it brings about some other reactions. It might even make us laugh or, or we might find it silly compared with a horse. I recently read that the donkey was probably quite small. Jesus' feet could possibly even have touched the ground when he was riding on this donkey. Now, donkeys are hardworking animals, but we don't think of them as bringing royalty or leading a procession. Horses make more sense. And throughout the biblical text, and historically, this is all makes sense too. Horses are quite often there when kings are there. Now, I do think, though, that some of those who were there knew a little bit more of the story, and, and we're familiar with this as well. Among this, this primarily Jewish crowd, there would have been some who would have known the writings of the prophet Zechariah, who writes about a different type of king, a king who will come to bring peace, a king who will replace the ruling power. And the prophet says this new king will bring peace to the nations, and free prisoners, and restore the people. 
And Zechariah writes that this king will be triumphant and victorious, and this king will come humble and riding on a, yes, a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Some then will know that the donkey is about more than just transportation. Some will know that Jesus was using this donkey in part to fulfill a prophecy written 500 years earlier. Some would know it. But even for those who knew this, were their expectations still clouding that knowledge even? Again, what were their expectations? What were their longings? We know their expectations were great in part because of the great risk that they were taking by participating in this march, this mocking march, this thumb-nosing parade. We don't take risks for things that don't matter to us. And so these people bring their expectations of Jesus so great that they'll risk their lives and spread their cloaks. They bring their expectations for a king, expectations for a fighter, a challenger to Rome. They bring their expectations and ever so quickly those expectations will be dashed. So often we form our expectations, expectations of others, expectations of ourselves, expectations of the world around us, expectations of the other, the other voters, the other party, the other race, the other genders, the other age or generation. We fill our lives with great expectations only to find those expectations dashed by reality or by the infiltration of reality with the disappointment of the human condition towards sin. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew the expectations that the religious leaders had of him. He knew the expectations of Pilate and the Romans. He knew the expectations of the crowds, his disciples, his friends, even his mother. Jesus knew these great expectations even as he was riding this donkey down a large mountain and into the valley of the shadow of death and back up the mountainside into Jerusalem. Jesus knew the expectations and he knew that those expectations, those expectations are what would lead him to the cross. Jesus knew the expectations of the people would be disappointed, but that's because these same human expectations are what had shaped an understanding of the world that had drifted from God's intention for humanity. You see, the greatest expectations are God's expectations and, and God's hopes and God's desires and God's design for humanity to be a people living out God's love. And God's greatest expectations, God's expectations will not be left unsatisfied. God's expectations will be satisfied on the cross, carried on the shoulders of Christ. And God's expectations will be satisfied when Jesus is killed, when this new king, this, this king who comes humble and riding on a donkey, this king who brings peace, this king who changes the course of the world, God's expectations for humanity will be satisfied, fulfilled, completed in Christ. God's expectations. And we have to ask ourselves then, what are our expectations of Jesus. I've said before that sometimes Palm Sunday is treated like a junior Easter. 
After several weeks of darkness in the midst of Lent, it's, it's almost as though we want to have a little celebration early. And I've actually always loved Palm Sunday. I've always loved Palm Sunday, I think, in part because of this. The celebration and the waving of palms and the parades and, of course, the donkeys. And this is great. We should do things like this. And the Palm Sunday parades and celebrations, they've been a part of the church for a long time, for centuries. As early as the fourth century, there are indications of these celebrations. By the eighth century, parades of palms were a regular practice. And into the Middle Ages, it, of course, became a huge spectacle from the church. The crescendo, though, this, this swelling at Palm Sunday was designed to create a contrast, a contrast not unlike those two parades in Jerusalem, Pilate and Jesus, a contrast not unlike our daily choices that impact whether we'll choose love as we, uh, we'll choose love as we approach others, the news, social media, our family, a contrast not unlike the world around us. And this, this contrast, the contrast of the expectations of a crowd, a crowd who will turn on Jesus in a few short days, the contrast of the expectations of the crowd when they're laying palms before Jesus, and the expectations of the same crowd when they're begging Pilate to crucify Jesus. A contrast of expectations that lead us together with the disciples to the feet of Jesus at the Last Supper, sharing a Passover meal around the table. A contrast of expectations that leads us to the foot of the cross on Good Friday, contemplating our own ways that we have tried to separate ourselves from God and considering the ways that evil seems to have a grip. A contrast of expectations. Oh, but the greatest, the greatest contrast we know lies not between today and Thursday or today and Friday. Friends, the, the greatest contrast of expectations will come when we realize that the one to whom we shouted Hosanna, the king we long for and hope for, the king who then looked weak riding on a donkey, is a king who on the cross, in the tomb, and in our lives upends our expectations of greatness and our expectations of a hero or even a savior, and certainly our great expectations of one with power. In her book, Entering the Passion of Jesus, Professor Amy Jill Levine, who our early risers met with this past Thursday morning, she writes that on Palm Sunday, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and its temple. Where are we, she asks? Are we in the parade and shouting Hosanna? Or are we on the sidelines, afraid to take part? Can we do more than sing the songs? Can we walk the walk? Then she asks, must we move so quickly from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday? Must we move so quickly? When we move slowly, without skipping from palms to eggs, Holy Week presents us with a stark contrast of expectations, a stark contrast that brings into focus the very reality that we are called into this confusing life 
as followers of Christ, where it is not always logical and it isn't always easy and it doesn't always match our expectations. In many ways, it's easier and probably even safer to follow the powerful and the mighty procession. But our calling as Christians is to follow the one whose power and might, the one whose power and might will be found in the grace of the resurrection and the empty tomb. The one whose power and might we find when we join the story, offering ourselves, offering ourselves to be used by God, walking the walk, as Levine puts it. And this week, walking the walk means being ready and willing to keep walking, to keep experiencing, to keep venturing, to sit with Jesus and hear his words at the Last Supper, to pray at the cross with the disciples and those who loved Jesus, to sit in the silence after the shouts of Hosanna and have quieted, the dust has settled, and the tomb is sealed. For we know, too, that our expectations, as they become one with God's expectations, will be met. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.